Hello and welcome to Classroom 101, the podcast on all things education, from best practice to the very worst. I'm Andy Van Hayden, a journalist turned teacher. I created this podcast so that more educators could have access to the ideas and wisdom of our profession's greatest minds. In Classroom 101, we strive to improve education by calling out its least helpful terms, paradigms, systems or practices, suggesting better alternatives. Our guest this week is Adrian Bethune. Adrian is both a primary school teacher and conference circuit speaker, specialising in the topic of his hugely popular book, Wellbeing in the Primary Classroom. Despite being known to some as Mr Happiness, you'll see that Adrian had no problem listing a wide range of educational terms, practices and paradigms he's frankly had enough of. I really hope you enjoy this wide-ranging interview covering everything from a knowledge-rich curriculum to Made in Chelsea. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Education's in pretty bad shape. Teachers are leaving on the planet and their escape. There's not enough time to teach the things you should. Time to banish education since you do it if you could. Time for classroom 101. Time for Budget slashing everywhere the government insists it cares Are we raising quality with all the endless scrutiny? If you're hating league tables and those tablets able labels Time to save our education from self-imposed cremation Time for classroom 101 Time for classroom 101 Yeah, it's time for every teacher's favorite podcast Classroom 101 Classroom 101 Uh, thanks very much for coming on. Yeah, no, it's really flattering to be asked and it's great to, uh, great to be here. Can you tell us a bit about your journey into teaching? Because I know you came from another career. So I started off uh, my career in the music industry. I worked for a record label, um, toured around the world with a band as their sound engineer tour manager. Oh, right. I, hadn't, I did an English degree, so it wasn't what I was planning on doing. And yeah, when I was at uni actually, because I was doing an English degree, my A-level English teacher, he said, if you ever think about becoming a teacher, come and see me. So during my holiday, summer holidays, my first year of uni, I went to go and see him. And he said, nah, don't do it. And he kind of put me off becoming a teacher. So, sorry to jump in. <laughs> yeah. I find that really interesting. So firstly, he had the foresight to kind of say, if you ever think of teaching, come and see me. So he must have seen something in you and thought, Maybe you could be a good teacher. Yeah. But then when you finally get around to doing it, he says, no, don't bother. Yeah. Um, yeah. But actually, when I left, I was thinking about going into journalism, strangely okay, enough. Okay, right. Yeah. And, and actually, I was going to do a journalism degree, and this A-level English teacher called Mr. Houston was like, no, 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 do an English degree, keep your options open, and do a post-grad uh, course in, in journalism, if you still want to do that. And if you want to become a teacher or whatever, come and see me. Right. So I did, and, and he said, no, don't do it. Um, and why? I think he was maybe a few years off retirement. He had probably been through numerous changes of curriculum, and mm. you know. So I, I guess he was slightly jaded maybe at the time. Mm. And so anyway, I used to DJ as a hobby. So when I was at 
Manchester University. They had a, a college for music production, and so after my degree, I did that, and, and that's how I ended up in the music industry. And I was in the industry for about six, seven years, and actually, in my late twenties, I, I had this job for a music publishing company by this stage, and the work was fairly enjoyable. But it wasn't very meaningful. I, all I was doing was making rich music publishers richer. That's, mm. that's essentially what my job was. And at that time, I went. I basically bought my first flat, shared ownership flat, where you buy part of a flat because yeah. I couldn't afford a whole one. And, and it was 2008 and there was a financial crisis. And suddenly I felt this huge burden on my shoulders. Mm. And actually, I started to feel anxious. And I'd never, I've always been quite a happy-go-lucky kind of person and I'd never really felt anxiety like that before. Mm. And really what happened was it just got worse and worse and worse. And, you know, I couldn't sleep at night and I really didn't like being in my flat either. I kind of felt like this was like a, a, a noose around my neck, like it was just mm. restricting me and, and I couldn't really see a way out. And, yeah, that led then, probably through sheer exhaustion, into a about of depression because mm. I was just physically and mentally exhausted by it all. And through this you're still doing your job? Still doing my job and, and interestingly I think this is really important to say because my view of mental health has completely changed since then more through education and learning about it. At the time I didn't have a single day off work I just kept turning up and work in a way was a good distraction but I remember thinking at the time particularly during the hyper anxious period I'd quite like to be knocked over by a car because then I could be hospitalized and I could rest wow. but so that that was my mentality I can't I can't rest because it's just a mental problem but if I was to be knocked down by a car I'd have a good reason to be in a hospital bed and just I could just rest and someone could look after me that is um, really sobering to hear and powerful and really interesting how specific it is can I ask you as well the people who you work with or for, mm. would they have had any notion, do you think, that you yeah. went through that? Or? Yeah, actually, people, I mean, I lost weight, and I'm, as you can see, I'm not a massive guy, so I was right. even much thinner. Okay. Um, and people did, you know, my colleagues came up and said, are you okay? And I, I, I put it down to the flat, and that I have mm. this flat, and I've got this mortgage, and I'm just finding it too much pressure. Mm. Um, so they were really good, and actually... What was really interesting was people start to reach out and share their stories of having experienced anxiety and, you know, I got some practical advice like stay clear of stimulants like caffeine and alcohol, particularly near bedtime and, and just like practical things. But actually, even, even if I wasn't taking advice on, the fact that they were kind of reaching out was really comforting. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I also... Um, went to see a counsellor and it was because a guy who I used to work with at the record label shared his story of anxiety and I had no idea that you know and he said you know he went to see a counsellor and again that was not even on my radar that to go and see someone and, and you know talk about it but I did and that was really helpful and basically over the next couple of years as part of my recovery getting better I just learned so much about mental health and well-being. Mm. Some of it was common knowledge, like exercising well and eating well. 
But as the old saying goes, like common knowledge is not as common action. Like I wasn't necessarily looking after myself that well. But anyway, I learned loads about the causes of stress, anxiety, depression, stuff that I just didn't know before. And one of the things I'd, I'd learned through my research as well was that, you know, in terms of happiness, some of the happiest people volunteer a lot. Yes. That had been on my radar in the past, but I signed up to this mentoring scheme. And I'm, uh, it's called Chance UK Charity. And it matches mentors with children that are at risk of being, primary age children that are at risk of being kicked out of mainstream school. And I was matched with a nine-year-old boy and, um, yeah, mentored him for a year. And it was really a rewarding experience, but also really sobering. Like his home life was, you know, the mum with depression, his brother was involved in local gangs. He had a really, really tough life. But from my perspective, his school weren't really helping him. And did um, you used to see him on weekends, if I remember from the book? Or yeah, weekends sometimes? mainly, but then sometimes midweek. Right. We'd go to, you know, get him signed up to local library, get him involved in local sports clubs, things like that. And can yeah. I, can I yeah. ask, wasn't there one particular moment, a real low moment in terms of his life? Yeah, basically I got a call, because we always had a group, pre-agreed times that I'd meet him, and then the charity called me kind of at work and just said, look, something really tragic has happened one of, let's call him Wesley, and I'm going to use his real name, but Wesley's friend from his behaviour, his um, pupil referral unit, the yeah. now, had taken his own life, and this was just a 10-year-old boy. Um, would you mind going around to see him, because he's really upset? And, you know, I was a 28-year-old, no kids myself, no experience of teaching or working with young people apart from this, and I didn't really know what to say. Yeah. I just went round there... The only thing I did know from my own experience of my period of anxiety and depression was uh, journaling. That journaling, just writing about your feelings and your thoughts and your experiences is, is really good. Mm. can be really good for your well-being. Mm. So my aunt from America sent me ages ago this little leather journal and I just took that round. I hadn't, I hadn't written in it and just said, just write about, draw about whatever how you're feeling, you don't have to talk to me about it if you don't want to, because he, he didn't really want to open up. So I just left that with him in the pen and just said, you know, whenever you're having tough thoughts, feelings, whatever, just write about it. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was a real low moment. Um, but, but the high was at the end, you know, he graduated from the scheme. He was in a different mainstream school, doing much better. He was signed up to some local clubs in his local area and the charity were giving his mum a lot more support for her mental health so things he was in a much better place than than when we started so that was really encouraging yeah so that experience plus a friend had asked me to volunteer as a governor in a local school those two things basically made me realize that actually yes i do want to become a teacher do want to work with young people and in particular i really want to help the children like the ones like the one I'd mentored, mm. yeah, to kind of find their place in the education system, learn uh, and, and be happy, basically. Mm. So so that was 2010 I retrained. You went into a GTP? Yeah. I did the Graduate Teacher Programme, yeah. South Bank University, worked at John Stainer Primary School, which is where I was a governor. Oh, right. um, so, yeah, and was there for the first five years of my career and made some great friends. 
It's funny, yeah. I, can't imagine, I can't imagine there are many people who were governor of the school before they were in, yeah. uh, trained there. <laughs> I know, it was, it was a bit weird because I was the chair of the finance committee, so <laughs> the head teacher was kind of reporting to me and getting me to sign off big expenses, and then suddenly, yeah, she Much was... bigger than your trainee salary, I'd imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. Mm. And then, did you ever do any curriculum leadership, or was it straight to almost leading on wellbeing? At Johnstone School, I was never on the SLT... I, I was really passionate about bringing the stuff that I learned as a as a twenty eight year old um, about mental health well being into the classroom into the curriculum and just weaving it into every day. So rather than it just being a thirty minute now, we're going to think about mm. mental well being and then we're going to forget about it for the rest of the day and week. So I I introduced a kind of daily exercise. So outside of our P lessons. Uh, we were kind of doing little runs every day, so okay. a kind of informal daily mile type right. thing. Yeah. Um, I had done a mindfulness course as part of my um, teacher training. Well, oh, that was me. I was going to say doing off, off. Yeah, you probably off my that yourself, did you? Yeah. That's not a typical thing. So maybe it is now. I've so I'm not seeing it. No, no. As part of your training. Yeah. So I right. did that off my own back because I had read again through my research that it was really good for combating stress, anxiety, and depression. Mm. Because that was the, that was the other thing when I started to train as a teacher. Some signs of anxiety were coming back, so mm. I was finding it harder to sleep at night. When I was sitting down to eat my lunch, I couldn't. I was hungry, right. but I couldn't stomach it, and I was starting to dread going in to work because it was just so intense. It's so a hard year, isn't it? it? Or at least my experience of GTP was yeah. overall great, but it was really tough work. Yeah, I ended up with ten massive folders of yes. evidence and the longest ever lesson plans you could imagine. Um, reflection upon reflection upon reflection, yeah. and all the time you're trying to be a teacher as well. When you're on a GTP, it's very much classroom-based, isn't it? Yes. Much more school-based. So. Yeah. So, because I was kind of weaving stuff wellbeing-wise into the curriculum, my head teacher was obviously starting to become aware through observations and stuff. She then gave me a few staff meetings to share what I was doing with other teachers. So I then carved out this little niche as a kind of healthy body and mind lead. So it wasn't just PE, I was trying to introduce mindfulness um, into the classroom. Um, ideas and, and research around growth mindset, which back in 2012, I guess when I was doing it, wasn't the big buzz that it is now. Um, so yeah, so that, that, was, that was my niche, that was what I was really passionate about. So although I you know, love teaching maths and I love teaching English and, and pretty much every other subject and love going on training and that, my real passion was learning as much as I could about what mm. contributes to children's physical and mental well-being and teachers and trying to foster ways of developing that. It's that thing, when you're naturally interested in something, like, I can't remember that exact quote, but it's like when you discover like what you love and that mm. becomes your work, it doesn't feel like work anymore. And that, and that mm. was true. If I was doing a staff meeting on stuff around well-being, I didn't think, oh, God, I've got to prepare this thing. I was like, genuinely really excited, and I'd be happy to spend time evenings and weekends reading about that kind of stuff, do courses in my own time, yeah. because that, that, it didn't, it's not work to me. It's, that's yeah. what I'm really interested in. Mm. Coming through to today, then, yes. so what's a typical week or month for you now? Yeah, so basically in 2016, I went part-time. 
Mm. And that was because my wife and I had our first child. He was about one and a half. My wife returned to work part-time. And we always wanted to share childcare. Mm. So um, I had I had Eli, my, my eldest boy, uh, Thursdays and Fridays. And it was during that time, actually, that I got the, the book deal with Bloomsbury to write Wellbeing in the Primary Classroom. Right. So... On weekends and, and mostly during his naps, actually, uh, that's when I wrote the book. So basically, fast forward to the book coming out um, September 2018, I was still part-time um, and my wife, we had our second child and my wife uh, was on maternity leave, so that just freed up a bit more time. Okay. So still working... Monday to Wednesday, yes. or three days a week. Yeah, and as a just, class teacher, as a class teacher, yeah, job showing in my current school with the deputy head, year four class. Mm. And then you had a couple of days where you could potentially go to conferences or yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, so so yeah, free time where I wasn't at home with Eli solely mm. uh, because my wife was at home with the boys, and she was really like my wife has been so supportive with the book coming out and, and supporting me, kind of spreading. The message and the word about that. So I've been able to go to conferences with the book coming out. More people start to invite you to to talk at events. I've been mainly education focused, but Swim England and Swim Ireland have invited me to speak at their conferences. So and that's just a bit random. Yeah. Um, you know, swimming teachers face the same pressures that we do. They're trying to do more on less. They've got targets to meet. They've got swimmers to make progress with. And they're trying to do it whilst not putting all of that pressure on for the kids where the kids are turned off swimming and turned off learning. And that's, you know, what we're trying to do in, in the classroom as well. Absolutely. I can totally see that the market is endless. Yeah. And, and my school have been really supportive. So even on my teaching days, if there's something way in advance and it's on one of my teaching days. So say like the Festival of Education last year mm. fell on one of my teaching days right. and I was asked to be on a panel. And I just, you know, approached my head and just said, look, I've been asked to speak at this. Could I, you know, can I switch days? And, yeah. and so that, that they've been really flexible and supportive as well. So both, both of those things, being part-time, having a flexible school means that I've been able to still teach and take the advantage of lots of opportunities, which has been fantastic. It's amazing. Brilliant. Yeah. It's, so, it's really interesting to hear that whole journey. Because hearing it like that, you could never have imagined when you were having those thoughts up in Manchester and having that really tough time. Mm. Fast forward to now, how different your whole life is. Um, yeah. And good on you for, for making that happen. I think it's wonderful. So. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a couple of the talks I've been asked to give has been about my journey. And again, there's something from positive psychology called post-traumatic growth. Okay. which is we often hear post-traumatic stress disorder and, and so when someone experiences a traumatic experience and it could be um, you know, serious bereavement or uh, you know, an accident that happens to a family, it could be anything. Mm. Uh, and so my traumatic experience was going through a period of intense anxiety and, and depression. Mm. And there's this whole field of research that actually people can go through traumatic experiences and then rather than suffer as a result... They, they have a kind of a cupid of suffering, but then something quite positive comes out of it. 
and I I am genuinely really grateful for that tough period in my in my twenties because mm. I wouldn't I wouldn't have changed careers. I wouldn't be doing what I do now. I wouldn't be as passionate about physical and mental well being without that experience. I probably would just be bumbling along in the music industry, maybe a bit more senior, mm. making music publishers richer still, <laughs> and just maybe feeling just a bit unfulfilled, but that's yeah, it, you know? Yeah, so so I'm genuinely really grateful. Well, really, really interesting. Thank you for that. I think that's a great background to what we're, we're going to talk about now. So now we get into the nitty-gritty yeah. of the show. <laughs> Should we get into mm-hmm. it? Mm. In Classroom 101, yeah. we strive to improve education by calling out its least helpful practices and then suggest better ways forward. What's yeah. the first thing you'd like to throw into Classroom 101? The first thing I'd like to throw in is is the term knowledge-rich curriculum. Okay. <laughs> really interesting start because yeah. I'm pretty sure the first page of your book, you say almost word for word for word, you say yeah. something like, I am in favour of a knowledge-rich curriculum. Yes. Right? Yeah, 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 that's true. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> tell me how this turns well, around. And also, can you define it? It's somewhere in this as well. Yeah. For people who might not be sure. I mean, that's, that's part of my annoyance is the fact that I just kept hearing this term, particularly on, on Edu Twitter, knowledge-rich mm-hmm. curriculum, knowledge-rich curriculum. And I just kept thinking, what what is a knowledge-rich curriculum? Like, what... what what have, what have I been teaching these nine years? Like, has it been knowledge poor? Has it been, you know, I feel like there's lots of knowledge that I've been teaching. Mm. Um, and in fact, that was one of the reasons I, on my website, asked to interview Dylan William. Okay. Because he was talking, I, I saw a video clip of him talking about um, the lack of knowledge in schools. And I was like, what? Like, you know, I know he's based in America. And so I interviewed him, and, and in fact, very kindly, he sent me two chapters from his unpublished book at the time, mm. which was, I think it's called Creating the, the Schools Our Children Need. Yeah. And, and so I, I got his definition of knowledge, knowledge-rich curriculum, um, and, and that did make it a lot clearer to me about what he means, but it's a phrase that I hear so much on, on Twitter, and people like Nick Gibb use it, and it just... I don't know, for some reason it just winds me up um, because it, yeah, it implies that um, lots of schools and lots of teachers are not teaching their children knowledge, mm. which is a nonsense. It's, that's complete rubbish. This is the, the knowledge versus skills dichotomy, right? Yeah. Or false dichotomy. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, even so, when I interviewed Dylan William, he was saying um, skills is basically knowledge. In which case, if skills and knowledge are the same thing, call it a skills-rich curriculum. If they're exactly the same thing, it's mm. just semantics. Yeah. And so that's why I think I'm, I get wound up by that phrase. It's also a phrase, it kind of feels like you're... Um, it's used as a, a bat, yes. almost. So, so it's for what, though? What do you feel like? Well, let's is? say, let's say a teacher on Twitter tweets that they've, they've hosted a Roman day. Their class are studying the Romans and they've had a Roman day and they got all their kids to dress up as Romans and they ate like Romans and they learned about Roman food and maybe they uh, made shields and they they formed a a tortoiseshell formation and they invaded another class. Let's say they they tweet about that. Mm. Then there's some snide teachers that then attack them for doing the Romans rather than learning about the Romans. Mm. And I just think... 
I just think that's really unfair. I think those Roman days can be extremely knowledge-rich if they're done in the right way. Yeah, if they're tokenistic, fine. That's maybe a bit of a waste of time. But that's the same with anything that you're teaching. Mm. Um, so, so that's the other kind of angle. I kind of get aggrieved that someone is doing something to really engage their class in the topic. And for all we know, it's deeply... Um, rich with knowledge and they're learning loads about the Romans how they lived and, and actually experiencing it as best they can mm. um, and then there's like a you know it feels like a knowledge rich attack like oh you know just dressing up what are they learning yeah you can have fun and, and experience your learning and, and learn loads and remember loads about mm. what you've just learned yeah the other side of the knowledge rich curriculum is if the knowledge isn't in their long term memory then they haven't learned anything yeah. And it's like, what does that mean either? Like, not long-term memory, short-term memory. Again, they're, they're things I've referred to in my own book. But they, but I don't like use them to beat people over the head with. What does it even mean, long-term memory? Okay, what what is the definition in terms of how long does something have to be in your memory for it to be classed as long-term? And then, from what I know about the brain and what I researched for my book, is is the fact that the use it and lose it principle exists. And so when you're learning, you're strengthening, strengthening neural pathways, but as soon as you stop practicing that thing, those pathways weaken and they can be lost. Mm. And so, you know, something can be in your long-term memory, like my, my deep knowledge from my A-level history, I knew everything there was to know about Stalin's Russia. Mm. I can't remember a thing no, now. No. I, I can remember terms like gulags and his iron fist and the five-year plan. I cannot remember any detail because I learned it, learned it, learned it, revised and practiced and all the rest of it, got my A-level mm. and then didn't return to it. Yeah, never used it. The fact is, that was in my long-term memory mm. and now it's not. And some people say, oh, well, it is, you just can't, you know, you're struggling to retrieve it, it's still there and, and if you were to read it, it would start to come back. Yeah, that might be so. Well, some people might say, well, it clearly wasn't in your long-term memory. Because you have Well, exactly. I'm also aggrieved at this really overly scientific model of learning. And I don't know, it just feels like with this knowledge rich curriculum, long term memory focus, and, and this real focus on cognitive science, mm. we seem to be forgetting that children are human beings with emotions, and, and emotions are fundamental to learning. That it's, it's becoming this kind of mechanized, scientific. I don't know, focus where we're just forgetting the human being that is at the centre of the learning mm. and the fact that your class is full of, of multiple human beings and those human beings all interacting with each other creates this completely analogue ecosystem mm. which is impossible to reduce down to a science. Yeah. The other major, major gripe is what knowledge Right, because okay. there, is, there is an infinite sea of knowledge out there mm. and what we get to teach in schools is literally like a pipette, yes. pipette amount <laughs> of knowledge. Okay? Yeah. So actually that, that, what's in the pipette is extremely important because we're, we're choosing to leave a whole other, you know, mm. yeah. rivers and whatever <laughs> of knowledge. Yeah. Um, 
And I think that's not debated enough. Like, what are we choosing to teach our children? Is that important? Is that useful for them? Is it meaningful for them? And the other thing you get battered over the head with is, you know, when people talk about, is this what they need for the 21st century? I don't care about the 21st century. Is it what they need for their growing up, mm. whatever century they're in? Mm. And people say, oh, yes, well, they, you know, they, well, they've always needed this and they'll continue to need this. And, but actually, I think we need to examine that. And when I interviewed Dylan, he, he said that actually he believes there should be a national debate about what's on the curriculum and he reckons it would take about a decade to kind of get to the nub of what it is we feel like a British citizen needs to know. Yeah. But even that, I think, is a bit of a nonsense because what is a British citizen mm. nowadays? like? Yeah, well, there's British values. Exactly. There's, uh, there's definitely people out there who say what does British values even mean why aren't we just teaching values yeah would you say yeah 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 like human values hmm. because yeah I feel like we're kind of meandering over a number of things here which you yeah. probably throw into classroom <laughs> 101 but a knowledge rich curriculum then first thing to to be binned yes the term. The, the term the term and what comes with it from certain quarters yeah, yeah. Basically, what what we should be teaching in schools is is a is a curriculum rich with knowledge and skills that is appropriate, useful, and meaningful to the children that you're teaching. And that that to me is just a good education. There's no special label for that. Okay. What's what's for the chop next? Um, the next for the chop is the term outstanding. What's your bugbear about it? My bugbear is because I wasn't in teaching before and then I got into teaching in 2010 and it was all about outstanding and I was mm. like, what? Where have you ever heard that term in like normal life? Like, who says outstanding? That's outstanding. Like, mm -hmm. that's like, <laughs> you don't really hear that term. So I was like, that's a bit of an odd expression. And we're talking about um, outstanding teaching, outstanding learning, outstanding schools. And I was just like, what's wrong with like, good or great or excellent mm. right? those are normal terms mm. and the reason you know I don't like that that expression is because of its connotations with Ofsted and also um, at the time when we retrained in 2010 Michael Gove became education secretary mm -hmm. and you know he he was on a big drive to make more schools outstanding as was Michael Wilshaw, who was the head of Ofsted at the time. And it, that, again, just used to wind me up. Let's just aim for a good education for our kids. This term outstanding just feels, just feels like an elitist phrase that most people don't use. So, so stop using it. <laughs> Are you, in essence, for or against competition in education? Out of interest. Uh, I am against competition in education and what to clarify I think competition is is actually quite antithetical to, to learning I think it's also antithetical to schools actually developing and improving because what schools need is to share resources share ideas share you know expertise from their teachers to help other schools but when you are competing for Ofsted grades and when you're competing for pupils and compete competing for grades mm. there is less and less incentive to share and collaborate and help each other and, and co-learn and grow 
Yeah, and and highly competitive classrooms where teaching and learning becomes a zero sum game where we're you know there's only a finite number of students that can get the top grades and that's that's not good for learning. It, it yes, it can aid learning, can encourage and motivate some students, but ultimately there are losers. Mm. Whereas what we want is when I say everyone to be winners, we want everyone to get the best possible education that they can get and the best grades that they they can get. And yeah, I just I just think that competitiveness, uh, league tables, it's it's all not conducive to a, a, a positive education system. Mm. So that that's my gripe without sounding because with it comes the banners. Um, and I you know the the very first school I worked in. We were good, according to Ofsted, and we were going for outstanding. Mm. And, you know, it was all about outstanding. And then we got the call, and then we got outstanding. And we got outstanding. It was a new framework, 2012, and we got outstanding in every category. Mm. And I remember my head was crying, you know, when we got, when we found out. I, you know, I think we all welled up, actually, because it was such, you know, we'd been working so hard, and we got it. Um, and that was on the, we had Ofsted... Wednesday and Thursday, and we all went to the pub on Thursday and we celebrated. And I remember Friday waking up, slightly hungover, but also thinking, it was November, oh my God, I've got to teach still. Like, it kind of felt like we'd reached this pinnacle, and that was it. We should have, like, retired, and because it was such a big thing. Mm. Um, but we still had to get up and, and teach. <laughs> and, and it was just like a massive anti-climax. And... I definitely felt like myself and other teachers went into a period of, of kind of coasting because the motivation wasn't there anymore. When you've got this massive extrinsic motivation to become outstanding and then you get it, mm. the incentive goes. Mm. Um, so, and that's the problem with extrinsic motivation is it, and rewards. It's once you take them away, mm. this, the motivation often disappears because if it's not intrinsic... What are you doing it for? Yeah, and and luckily we we turned it around. We we got this new worked on this massive new project to focus on. We, we wanted a really explicit value system in our school, so we went we went on that journey. But but that I think is an inherent problem with this label outstanding, and also it's got hangovers from when teachers were judged on their teaching in twenty minute snapshots. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and, and books about outstanding teachers and, you know. My, my head teacher said to me, in my first five years of teaching, every time she observed me, apart from my very first year or so, I was getting good or outstanding mm. judgment. And she said to me, oh, you know, all, all I ever see you do is teach good and outstanding lessons. It's only downhill from here. She said it as a joke. But I remember thinking, God, yeah, like... That's how it feels, actually. It's mm. not. Um, it's not an enjoyable process trying to maintain this outstanding. Actually, it's a lot of pressure, mm. and you feel like you can end up feel like feel like a fraud, because as lots of teachers will say, when you were judged on your teaching, it became a performance culture, yeah. and you just had to perform in that one lesson, and then you could just go back to being a bog standard teacher the rest of the time. Mm. And it's this. This the problem with these extrinsic rewards and labels of outstanding is nonsense let's just aim for being good consistent teachers mm. and of course as well as it being an extrinsic motivator the word in itself of course you're talking about the competition side of it mm. the word in itself you 
not clearly not every school can be outstanding they are standing out from the others so yeah it's um, competitive right there in its definition right yeah there. yeah and, and I've times. been to outstanding schools in fact as part of my training I had to go and observe in these outstanding schools and I you know every school has its own ethos and culture and some of these schools I was just like, I would not want to work there I would not want to learn there like I remember this one school, the children were going out to play, and the bell rang. And I was thinking, God, is there no one in the school today? I couldn't hear a single child going out to play. Mm. And they were just walking downstairs in absolute silence, and this was a primary school. And I remember thinking, God, this place feels completely soulless. Like, I, I get you want children to be as quiet as possible and orderly, but they were going out to play and there was no joy. Mm. They were not excited about going out to play because they, they had to be silent. And so I couldn't wait to get back to my school and the, the noise and the, and the vibrancy. But that was an outstanding school. And I don't, personally, I didn't feel like that was an outstanding place to, to learn. It should be more of a, a kind of consultancy. consultancy and, okay, we've noticed this area's weak let's help you develop that and mm. we can put you in touch with these people that do it really well but mm. rather than just like judgment and this is going to hang over you for the next however many years yeah so i don't think that judgment should be published um i think schools should get report and that should be for them to work on to improve their weak areas and celebrate the the good ones mm. now let's move on to your final nomination so what's following a knowledge-rich curriculum and outstanding into classroom 101 so the, the final thing going to, to Classroom 101 is um, pupil progress. So <laughs> Another one where, on the face of it, it sounds crazy. What's wrong with pupil <laughs> progress? Right? It's, it's, the, it's the charade of pupil progress meetings, particularly when it's linked to performance management. Oh, that's such a brilliant word for it. And it is a charade. This kind of co-conspiracy and when I, what I mean by that is that all teachers we know it's nonsense but we're all in on it and we all play the game that, that basically each child is going to make linear progress from the moment they join a school to when they end and, and these pupil progress meetings you go to and, and some are better than others and I've you know, been in a few schools you know, let's, not, let's not look at all these children let's not look at the 25 children that are doing brilliantly well and, and be like, wow, you know, 80% whatever uh, are bang on track or whatever, they're, they're making good progress. Let's just focus on these children that aren't. Mm. And surprise, surprise, these children were, were kind of struggling at the beginning, you know, reception year one, and, and I'm now in year four, and they're still struggling. They're making progress, uh, they're improving, they know more now than they did at the beginning of the year or last term, whatever. But what can we do to accelerate their progress? And, of course, I am completely for anything that we can do to, to close any attainment gap. Like, that is my job as a teacher. That's, that's why I'm here. And when I think about the boy that I mentored and he was behind, you know, if I was his class teacher, I'd be wanting to, like, what can I do to help you? But there are also... And, and you know, and I, this is a paradox with like growth mindset. This is not putting a limit on what anyone can achieve, or but there are um, 
there are studies out there that show uh, and Roger's history so a guy I don't know if you follow him he's, he's mm, quite good on scientists Tom Rogers okay. yeah on scientists research the, the, the kind of limit that a teacher has on a child's academic attainment and it, and it ranges I think from something like 8% to 15% so it's not you know you only tiny. have them for that sort of percent of time genes play a huge role in, in learning that's an undeniable fact the same way that genes determine uh, you know how tall someone's going to be in the colour of their eyes you know you cannot deny that fact but also a child's home life and upbringing is hugely important um, for a child's learning and often the children that you know we're, tr we're focusing on pupil progress meetings and it's kind of my, my gripe is when you're being you're doing loads mm. to try and support these children and create a really positive learning environment and also you know you might have some interventions you might have you're differentiating not that you know giving different worksheets mm. or anything but you're, you're you're differentiating your support you're you're really trying to help these children yeah. make good progress but you know but you come into the meeting and they say well what, what, what are you, you doing do? yeah and i'm and it's kind of like well not much more to be honest like i'm doing it and you kind of list the things that you're doing and do you have to set targets, which must be a minimum of, sort of six, seven points ahead, or it needs to be eight yeah, points? Yeah, and it's kind of like, okay, we need to make accelerated progress so that at this point by the end of the year. And you're like, I would love to, but there are limitations to what I can do. And, and also the fact that, you know, when you really, a bit like the boy who I mentored, if you were to really look at his home life, what was also holding him back was his mum had mental health issues and he needed support with that. His brother was involved in local gangs, he didn't have a positive role model in his life that was showing the benefit that the you know that valued education. Mm. And those are huge hurdles for a teacher to overcome by themselves. Mm. And so that's my gripe with pupil progress meetings where it's the ones that don't celebrate your your achievements, what you are doing well, what you are doing to support, not just their academic, and it's also just English and maths as well. Mm. It's, it's kind of like, yeah, but they're amazing on the sports field. Yeah, we don't care about that, we don't measure it. You should have seen the, the sculpture they made, yeah, we don't care about that, we don't measure it. It's just English, just writing, reading and maths, that's it. Mm. It's like, oh, okay. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my gripe. It's when you, you kind of come out of them feeling deflated, even though you're working really hard, you're doing the best for the children in your care, but the focus is on what's not going well. Mm. And mm. so yeah, th th that's my, my, my gripe. And I'm sure there are schools out there where pupil progress meetings are a really positive experience. Mm. Sure. But on the whole, my experience has not been largely positive. I'm sure there will be many, many teachers listening who are hearing this and thinking this is exactly my experience year on year of pupil progress meetings and so much food for thought there. <laughs> Thanks. We could talk all day about this. Yeah. I think it's fascinating. Just uh, I should add that my nickname at, at London Southbank, my teacher training course, was Angry Adrian. <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> to see that. I used to just have these rants. We, we, I used to... You'll know, I was in class Monday to Thursday and Friday was my uni day. Mm. And I'd just go into uni on a Friday and just <laughs> let rip about all the things that were winding me up about our education system. Mm. Uh, and that's probably another reason I could, why I got into mindfulness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just put your own 
pure sanity. <laughs> so you can't help yourself, can you? No. Because I think most people in this profession are just so passionate about it and, and wanting to do it properly. And so if you feel that something is just wrong mm -hmm. and it's just not helping either you or the children, it gets to you, right? Yeah. Quite deep. deep. Yeah. And I think I might be wrong. My assumption is that it's more acute for career changes mm. um, because you have known a whole other career. And when, you, when I came into education, I just thought it was mad. Like, I just thought a lot of the things we were doing in class was madness. Yes. And and I don't I don't believe that education is is solely to prepare children for work. I don't mm -hmm. I don't get that mm. at all. I think it's I think it's much more profound than that. But equally, <laughs> there are some things we're doing that I just think this. If you were to do this in the private <laughs> sector, whatever, people would just be like, "So you, I'm not doing that." When you come in with a new perspective from another career, mm. and you see certain things, and you think. Why? Why? And it's just the way it's always been done. And yeah. you get told that pretty much word for word. It's just mm. what we've always done. But it's frustrating. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's a book, as you were saying, that Imagine by Jonah Lehrer. And it's all about creativity. Right. And, and yes, you know, we're probably born on a spectrum of creativity, but it can be learned, it can be taught. But in that book, he, he, there's a whole chapter or a section on outsiders. Mm. And how some businesses like 3M, who make sellotape and post-it notes, they specifically give employees kind of secondments to different departments. So mm. someone might be working on technology for screens, and then they're put in the adhesive department, completely unrelated. But maybe they bring some of their skills, and and but they look at the problems the other departments are having mm. with fresh eyes, mm. and and there's so much innovation and creativity that happens there. Um, and, and also because they are novices, um, they make mistakes, but from those mistakes can come innovation. Yeah, right, so yeah. I learned in that book that post-it notes were a mistake. Yes. In that the adhesive, someone created this adhesive that kind of stuck to stuff, but not very well. And it came off fairly easy after like a day. And they're like, well, that's pointless. Who, you know, sellotape, we want stuff to be strong. But then they put that on post-it notes. And then you want something that sticks but not that strong and it's, it's created a whole massively successful product from a kind of error, a mistake. Mm. I think it's not just, you know, people that have been in teaching their whole lives, I'm not saying you, don't, you can't see the wood from the trees, it's nothing like no, that. No. It's like you said actually, in, in meetings, getting more perspectives, yes. not just the same people, you know, SLT or, or otherwise, the big voices, hear from the people that often sit on the fringes and say, well, actually, what do you think? Could we do this a different way? Mm. Knowledge-rich curriculum, outstanding, and pupil progress all into uh, Classroom 101, plus a couple of others that are unofficially kind of have kind of yeah. gone that way as well. Hi there, Andy here. I hope you're enjoying the show. This is a quick message to ask for your help. The aim of Classroom 101 is to support wider sharing of ideas and wisdom in education. So if you like what you hear from Adrian, I'd be really grateful if you could share this with others, whether verbally or via social media. You can tweet the show at Classroom101Pod, me at AndyVT101, and Adrian will share his own details at the end of the episode too. The response to last week's episode with Emma Turner has been marvellous. Thank you so much to everyone who's commented and shared it online, including Ruth Swales, Tiglo, and Rachel Ball, 
to name but a few. It really means a lot, so thank you. Lastly, just to say, if you like what you're hearing, click subscribe or follow on whichever platform you're using so we can start sending you updates when new episodes are released. Now, in the first series of Classroom 101, we'll be concluding each episode with three quick questions to get to know our guests a little better. So, let's get back to the show. Who was your favourite teacher growing up? I can probably guess who you're going to say. Yeah, so Mr Houston, mm. A-level English teacher. Um, ironically, he was someone... I went to uh, quite a strict secondary school. It was all boys' school. <laughs> and he was someone that I was always scared of. He was quite... Um, he, was, he wasn't actually that big, but he had a presence. Mm. And he had a look. And I don't think I ever heard him shout either, but he had a way of speaking. Mm. Um, anyway, so the my whole journey through the school, quite scared of him, and then I, I took A-level English, and he was the A-level English teacher. And it, it was then, it was kind of like the Poet Society, he, you were then part of his club, right. and because you'd chosen his subject, he treated you completely differently, and he was just really inspiring. He amazingly got me to love Shakespeare and William Blake, right. who up until that point I had shown no interest in into whatsoever. Either of them. Neither of them. No, I just thought Shakespeare was boring and William Blake's poetry didn't make sense. Mm. Um, but he made them come alive and he was just, yeah, he was old school. He'd turn up to class late with a cup of tea <laughs> um, and, and, and saucer. And yeah, he just, I, I can't remember him teaching anything. That's the interesting thing. I just remember him sat at the front. We would just be reading sections of whichever text we were reading and he would just wax lyrical about some ideas and we'd just make notes and yeah. that was it there was no no interactive whiteboards his his passion and enthusiasm for the text we were reading mm. was just fil filtered through the whole I mean there's only like 10, 12 of us mm. but yeah we were all infected with it he was amusing and yeah he, he, he in fact when I retrained to become a teacher I wrote to him um, and he retired, and so I asked the school, can you pass it on, and then he wrote back. So the meantime, he told you, don't do it, you got ahead and done yeah, it. Yeah, I basically said, right? I ignored your advice, I'm now a teacher. <laughs> and he wrote back and said, you'll never believe me, but I recognise your handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> he was, I didn't believe him, but um, yeah, he was just a funny guy. Brilliant. What's one guilty pleasure you enjoy too much to give up? Um... <laughs> So, obviously, by definition, this is a guilty pleasure, and I kind of half debated whether I should even say it, but my guilty pleasure is watching Made in Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> I was not seeing that coming, okay. And the reason it's a guilty pleasure, it's an old habit, I don't know how long it's been going for, but I've literally watched it from the beginning. Right. And the reason I think I enjoy it is because, one, it's a bunch of extremely wealthy young people that have no responsibility, no jobs from what I can see. Um, so they're completely, I can't really relate to them in that sense. I'm not rich, I'm not wealthy, and they're living playboy and playgirl lifestyles. The other thing is, is because teaching is so laden with responsibility, mm. watching Made in Chelsea is like pure escapism. It's like living vicariously through these guys that one minute they're in a bar in Chelsea, the next minute they're in South Africa because they've decided, let's go on holiday tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and also, my wife and I, we're often kind of 
swearing at the telly, going, oh my God, you know, um, at the antics they get up to. So yeah, that's that's my guilty pleasure, and I'm slightly embarrassed at saying it, but... You are, as a class teacher, you're performing. You are, and it's intense, and there is that sense of adrenaline high, mm. and then by the time you get home, <laughs> or maybe you've done more work, you... you really long for some kind of escapism don't you whether yeah. it's a book or something I totally get that something where you don't really have to think too much and yeah. just switch off yeah, and that's so made in Chelsea for you love island for some people and yeah. you know, whatever right. <laughs> who's your biggest inspiration? Um, so my biggest inspiration I think is my wife Sam you have to say um, that really don't you? no <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I, the reason is there's a, there's a few reasons. One, my wife had, you know, a successful career and then and she had always wanted, um, we met whilst in music publishing. Oh, I worked in you? the same company. Okay, she worked right. in marketing and I worked in licensing. Right. Um, and she, I, as long as I'd known her, we were friends before we got together, she wanted to do a master's degree in English. Right. And then she left the, the music company and then got a kind of much more senior job in marketing, was doing really well. And then she just after a few years at this company said actually I just want to do a masters and just quit her job and just did a masters and I thought that was extremely brave mm. um, because she she didn't have a job to go back to they didn't say oh we'll keep a job open so that was really brave and she was just following her heart she just really wanted to do that and I think that gave me the courage as well to retrain to be a teacher okay, so that was before you yeah so that was like a year or so before I did, you know changed career so I think that gave me the courage to do that and then also since becoming a mum, um, so I was there for, for both births um, of our two boys. I don't know if you were there with, with your... I was, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. basically, if you see, well, the journey of, of, of pregnancy and then childbirth, it, it is, like, incredible. Mm, it's scary. It? <laughs> um, yeah. But I have this, like... But, you know, my mum was a, an amazing role model for, for me, and I was kind of looked up to and respected women. But I have this renewed sense of, like, the warrior in women mm. because of uh, what mums go through with pregnancy and childbirth. And, yeah, so... And then also seeing what, what being a mum entails and it is different to being a dad you know especially mm. if you're breastfeeding stuff and the demands and you know I'm at home a lot with my boys but they still really want mum and that that puts you know pressure on her when she's tired my wife is incredibly strong and courageous and um, has been really supportive with with my book she read every single word in the book in fact mm. she was like my pre-editor editor yeah. So before I sent my book to my editor, my wife would read it, and because she's actually a much better writer than me, you know that that helped make my book a lot better. So yeah, she she's my biggest inspiration. She's yeah, amazingly brave, courageous, strong, mm. and really grounded and funny. So it's been really fun talking. Uh, I think what you're doing is fantastic, and I think well-being is. Uh, I'm so glad it's coming more into the media now mm. because it's so so important um, so thank you uh, yeah. it's been really interesting to talk to you and I would really encourage people to read your book cool. really enjoyable read it goes from everything from the theory right through to the in, in class practice 
Finally, before we finish, can you just share with people who are listening, they'll be keen to know where they can find out more about you, hear from you, your website, your book, that kind of thing. Yep. So I'm on Twitter, at Adrian Bethune, um, and I tweet about well-being and education-related things. I have a website, which is uh, www.teachhappy.co.uk, and it's only got one H, (laughs) Teach Happy bit. And there's a blog on there, uh, there's a blog where I interview people like psychologists like Dr. Rick Hansen and Professor Dylan William about knowledge-rich curriculum, things like that. <laughs> and my book, Wellbeing in the Primary Classroom, uh, it's published by Bloomsbury, you can buy it in most good bookshops, Amazon, things like that online. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I'm speaking at more and more education events, uh, I'm... Yeah, if you see me speaking, please come and say hi. I'm always keen to meet people that um, are interested in in well-being and education. Adrian Bethune, thanks for being our guest on Classroom 101. Andy, thank you for having me. Cheers. It's been great fun. Education's in pretty bad shape. Teachers are leaving on the plan and their escape. There's not enough time to teach the things you should. Time to banish education since you do it if you could. Time for classroom 101. Time for